whether that's going to happen in the next 30, 40, 50 years or won't happen in our lifetime, time will tell. But I know what role I'd like to play in that energy transition with 10X. All right, Mark. Well, hey, thanks for having me. It's uh, good to see you again, albeit virtually. For those of you who don't know, uh, my name is Miguel Pena. I'm president and CEO of a, a very small company called 10X Technologies. I My uh, entree into the oil field was back in 2007 uh, when me and a, and a few other partners uh, kind of collaborated, um, raised some capital and bought um, a frac sand mine in Genoa, Nebraska. Um, and we started a company called Preferred Sands back then. Um, we grew that business uh, from 2008, basically, all the way through to my exit in 2018 uh, to be one of the largest, uh, not only one of the largest frac sand suppliers in, in North America and overseas. We ship product overseas as well. But we also started a, a technology business, which was really tangentially related to sand. It was ma- mainly coatings for our sand products. And that was kind of our entree into, into the tech side of, of oil and gas. And, um, you know, that ended up being a great business for us. And we kind of fell in love with the technology side of, of the business at that point, you know, Fraxen becoming, you know, more of a commodity. Um, you know, the, the technology side is really where we felt like we could bring value to our customers and and maybe become a little bit more important, right? Offer them a product that that really um, provided solutions, brought value, um, drove efficiencies, and um, you know wasn't just a me too product. They can go buy Fraxan anywhere, right? So so I think that gave us a, a really good uh, opportunity to differentiate and, and become more valuable to our customers. And that was really that was part of the the strategy. Fast forward to 2016. We went to our private equity partners at the time at Preferred Sands and said, hey, we want to continue to diversify our product portfolio, um, You know, the tech, technology side of the business. We think we can grow. We'd like to grow that on the chemical side. We'd like to bring in chemicals. and But s- similar concept and similar strategy where we'd bring in chemicals that would uh, drive value, drive efficiencies, provide solutions for our customers. We had a really good, uh, strong R&D team, some brilliant scientists that worked for us that had some great ideas. And we thought we could, you know, certainly um, develop and commercialize some products and bring them to market that could help kind of expand our base. And the short answer from our equity partners uh, was no. Um, they wanted to st- they wanted to stick to sand, and they didn't want to diversify. And um, so we. So what was what was the opportunity? What did you guys see from a business perspective in in the chemical space that didn't exist in the frac sand space? Well. I think the opportunity was really more, we're looking at it more from a macro standpoint. So when you look at oil and gas in general, you look at all the innovation that's taken place, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, most of which took place in the last 20 years. Um, I mean, it's really fascinating um, how much the industry has grown and, and what, you know, folks like you have been able to accomplish. Yet, despite all that innovation and you know un- unbelievable output, 
um, in production and, you know, step changes in oil and gas, there's still 90 at best, 90% of the hydrocarbon is still left behind. Um, or I should say at best, only 10% is being recovered. Right. So, and we feel like, you know, you guys have just done an amazing job of just, you know, continuing to push, push the envelope as far as you could. And, you know, to a point where I think now, you know, a lot of operators are starting to pull back, you know, so you still have all this hydrocarbon left behind. And we, we were just convinced that you can't, you know, you're looking on, on the propping side, you can't pump any more sand per stage. You certainly could, but I'm not sure you're going to get any benefit out of it, right? Um, not sure you can jam any more stages. Not sure it makes sense to drill the lateral any longer. You know, so mechanically, there's just not much more. I think you guys have pretty much pushed it as hard as you could. And so we we just feel strongly that the, the next step change will be a chemical. We think We think chemistry is is going to be the next step change, right? To take that 10% to perhaps 15 or 20%. And we want to be a part of that. Yeah. You know, that that's really, that's what 10X is about. I mean, it's it's that simple. Yeah. You know, you, you say lateral length. I'll, I'll caveat that. I did just see one directional program from an offset operator that they, they did a U-turn well. And I've seen this a couple times in industry actually where you know, folks will drill a lateral and then pull a U-turn and, and come back down elsewhere in the section and actually, you know, double their lateral length in the same hole. So I don't, I don't know how effective that's been, but just, yeah, kind of a tangent. <laughs> yeah, which, by the way, I think is, is amazing to me. I think in order, it, like, to be able to accomplish that in and of itself is is simply amazing. And, and you know, look, if you can, if the if that, if those operators that have tried that you know, can, you know, see the return on, on that investment, which I imagine is a huge cost, you know, then that's great. I mean, that's what the industry needs, you know, just try everything, you know, at least once and see, and see what happens. Um, you know, but, but we still, we still feel strongly that, you know, the next step change in oil and gas has to be a chemistry. And, you know, we were committed to, you know, being a part of that step change, in you know one way shape or form even even if it's a very you know a tiny part you know but that's our goal and that's our mission as a company and we just need you know we're constantly looking for operators that are willing to you know kind of be pioneers along our alongside with us right awesome well i want to get i want to get more into that but before we do i want to talk a little bit more about your background and ask you a couple questions about kind of how you got into entrepreneurship um, so, I mean, were you, were you always an entrepreneur? I mean, how did you discover the opportunity of the frac, frac mine in, uh, in Nebraska? Give me just, give us just a little bit more color about that. Sure. Sure. And, and apologies for, for jumping ahead a, a little bit. I kind of, I skipped, I skipped the very beginning, um, of my story, but you know, I, I graduated from, I finished grad school in 2002 and, um, you know, 2002, 2001, 2002 were you know, an interesting time to start a career. You know, the, the kind of the dot-com had expl- boom had kind of collapsed. Um, there wasn't um, a lot of, wasn't a lot of hiring going on. Um, and I had very little uh, opportunities um, to start a career. And, and, I, and I was also, you know, young and still kind of undecided or unsure as to what yeah. I wanted to do in my career. And, um, you know, I, I got really lucky. I, I met, I met a guy who was a, a local, uh, Philadelphia based commercial real estate developer and, um, you know, r- really impressed me, um, with, 
you know, his entrepreneurship and the business that he's, you know, how he started it and how to, how he got to be successful. And, um, I said, you know what, I, whatever this guy's doing, you know, he's, he's, he's doing the right thing because he's, he's become really successful. He's very well known locally and he's got some great projects and real estate seems like a great in- industry. So why not jump in head first? So I started calling him, you know, every day, right after I met him, I met him actually at a scholarship banquet at my university. He was a keynote speaker at that banquet. And I called him every day after until I got an interview. And, um, the, the child approach. Hi, sir. I have nothing to offer you, but I will annoy you until you pay attention to me. <laughs> that's right. That, that's <laughs> exactly. I have a file or restraining order. One of the two. Yeah, yeah one, of, one of the two. And, and, and luckily it was the, the former, not the latter for me. Uh, although he, he certainly might have had, you know, a, 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 a case for filing a restraining order. Uh, so, so sure enough, yeah, he brought me in for an interview and, you know, my first interview with him ended up being two hours. And I think I, I just got a really good understanding of what he was looking for. And, and I guess I did a, a good job of, of presenting myself and what, what, how I could potentially help him with his business. And he hired me, he gave me a shot. And, um, that same uh, co- company continued to grow, um, and I did I did really well. Um, and then that was in 2000, that was in 2002. And in 2006, he was approached by some some big big developers that were big kind of like hotel guys. We were mostly office and industrial, and these hotel guys came approached my my CEO at the time. And they wanted to diversify. They wanted to get into um, office and industrial. They wanted to diversify their portfolio. Familiar, familiar theme, by the way, of kind of like what we did later on in life. So long and short of it is he sold the entire portfolio to this one group, uh, one shot. And literally overnight, um, he was completely out of the real estate business. And we had established a pretty big company. We had probably at that point about 140 employees. Um, I was essentially a sales and leasing guy and I was a top producer and he, he grabbed me for breakfast one day after that and was like, Hey, here's what I'm thinking about doing. Uh, I'd love for you to stick around. And his idea was he wanted to go out. Um, uh, he saw this opportunity to go out and buy, um, operating businesses that sat on large amounts of real estate and he kind of narrowed that list down to like three or four types of businesses that really that always were always sitting on a large amount of real estate and in many cases especially in this market this was kind of 2006 2007 you can imagine you can remember what was going on back then 2006 was the housing collapse right and then 2008 the financial crisis so during these times there was there there was these op these businesses that were operating on very large pieces of real estate where the potential un- value that you could unlock in the real estate was worth more than the business, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, so these businesses were, you know, operating at, you know, in some cases at a loss, or even if they were profitable, they were probably only making a few million bucks a year, but they were sitting on real estate that could be worth a couple hundred million dollars. And Is it not dissimilar to perhaps like a like a parking lot in a downtown metro area? That's but, a great yeah. example. They're, they're making money, but you could build an office building there and make lots more money. That's a great example. Um, the, the difference with that example is that it, typically the, the real estate is, um, is not that big. 
right? So we were looking at it. Um, we looked at the housing market collapsing and we're like, the housing market has to come back. So if we can go buy like hundreds of acres, um, you know, and, and buy, but buy these operating businesses based on their, based on a multiple of earnings, not on the value of the real estate, because in order to generate value in the real estate, you really had to go, like there was work to be done. You had to go get it yeah. permitted for higher and better use, et cetera, et cetera. So the businesses that we looked at were um, port operators, um, uh, some of these small regional airports that were kind of on their butts because nobody was flying private anymore. And and then we looked at mines and then we looked at a couple other uh, avenues. And, and we were, when, I, when I say large pieces of real estate, like hundreds of acres. So long and short of it is the first mine, we, we, had, we ended up buying a mine in Southwest Florida. And it was, it was a limestone quarry. Okay. In Florida, you mine three feet, you hit water, and you come up with a mining plan where you basically like, you create man-made lakes, and then you have lakefront development land. Right? So, so this, this quarry that we bought in Florida was right outside of Naples, in between Naples and Fort Myers. And we were like, heck, it's 85 and sunny all year round in, in Florida. The, the market is literally on its rear. The housing market is dead. But, you know, and therefore this this limestone quarry, which which, by the way, limestone aggregate, all that whole business is tied to um, it's tied to how the like housing starts literally drive that business. So if they're not building houses, then those businesses are really struggling. So and we saw an opportunity to like countertops yeah. or cement or. Yeah, it's all curb cuts and asphalt, concrete. You know, yeah. when you're looking at sub subdivisions to build, you know, a three to 500 or a thousand unit subdivision, uh, you know, the, the aggregate business is is uh, relies heavily on the two things, housing starts and and DOT projects. So like roads, highways. So if neither one of those are are doing well, then the aggregate guys, limestone, sand and gravel, they're all getting killed. Right. So so we were able to buy this this operating mine for for pennies on the dollar because they weren't making any money. But we had 900 acres now that we can go get permitted. So so here we are um, in a very, relatively short period of time. We go from like owning about 12 million square feet of commercial office and industrial space to being completely out of that business and being in the mining business, which we knew we knew nothing about. Um, so, so it was a big risk. Right? That's like entrepreneurship. <laughs> well, I'll figure it out. We'll <laughs> Write the check. Out. That's right. That's right. So we ended up financing this thing like a real estate deal because that's the, and you know, which in hindsight ended up being working out really well for us, but we weren't being clever or smart. It was just, that was the only way we knew how to finance deals. Right. So we didn't have these like private equity and investment banking relationships that we can go, you know, Wall Street and figure out how to finance, you know, the acquisition of a of a limestone quarry. We just had all our banking relationships and we were able to sell them on the idea that we could we could subdivide 400 acres of this property um, and sell it to Toll Brothers for X, you know, which was much more than what we paid for the operating business. So. The challenge there was is that, you know, these, these mines, the way quarries and mines work is, you know, they're highly regulated and they're they're You have to get them permitted. And once you have that permit, you have to basically continue to operate that mine until the permit expires and or the, the reserves um, are completely um, are gone. You've, you've consumed them all. 
So, and, and if, if you stop short of that timeline, um, you have a huge, uh, reclamation liability. So, so whether we liked it or not, we were in the mining business. So we quickly had to go, you know, learn it, understand who, who's managing it and, um, you know, continue to run it, albeit at a slow pace. So we had to cut costs and try to just keep the thing alive. And remember, there's no market for aggregate at this point in time. It's 2006. So, you know, we're, we're good at sales, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) you can't sell something if nobody, if nobody needs it. That's right. There's no demand, you know, I don't care how good you are at selling. So we quickly went out and hired a a guy, um, who knew about mining, right. As kind of like, we hired him as the president of the, of the, the business, and and our plan was, you know what, we got a good business model. It's going to be tough and we just got to ride it out. But the housing market's going to come back. In the meantime, we're good at getting real estate permitted. You know, we're good at development. We're good at going through real estate development. I mean, that's what we did. Right. And and we're good at construction. Right. So we we had all the, the, the tools, all the pieces. We just needed the market to come back and we needed to be able to weather a storm. And our plan was to go raise capital and go do 10 of these across the country. Um. So we hired this guy to run the business from an operation standpoint. You know, this guy was a 40-year mining guy um, and knew his stuff, right? And we were like, great, we found the right guy. He had spent the last 10 years of his career in a frac sand mine in Texas, in Brady, Texas. He was running, a, uh, there was a company called Ogilvy Norton that had a brown frac sand mine and and then follow the bouncing ball that mine eventually traded to hands to a major mining company from Belgium called Carmus and then ultimately that Carmus sold it to Pioneer who, uh, so so the guy who yeah the guy who ran that mine is the guy who we hired to to work for us so of course he had spent the last 10 years in Fraxan so he starts you know wetting our appetite about Fraxan and he's like look you know I, I I know you guys don't know anything about Fraxan and oil and gas but he's like let me just paint the picture for you this is 2007 now mind you so you were probably a baby at this point but uh, <laughs> I, I was a junior in high school yeah <laughs> so so 2007 I mean the, the fracking was was really taking off it was skyrocketing and, you know, there was just not enough frac sand to meet the demand. And the existing producers wouldn't pivot and produce more because, you know, the boomer bust cyclicality of, of the oil and gas business, you know, they kind of they like the glass industry. They like, you know, the mining business is all about volume and consistency. You know, oil and gas just wasn't good to those fracks to those mines. So they only made enough frac sand to you know, make a, make a big profit and, you know, they would only allocate so much. They weren't going to pull capacity from any other industry that they serviced. So that was, therein was the opportunity for us. Right. Um, so he, he tells us, this guy that we hired tells us about this mine in Nebraska. He says, a couple of guys that worked for me tried to open this mine up. They had some problems financially. The plant didn't get built all the way. They had some contracts that they signed. Uh, the, the, Customers had put up some some cash to help them, but they just they didn't get it done. And we can step in and take over this thing, and it's a huge opportunity. He said the only problem is, it's not a real estate play. It's in the middle of Nebraska, in the middle of cornfields in Nebraska. You're you're likely never going to develop this real estate unless you want to get into agriculture and farming. So it was totally different. 
business model than what we were looking at. We, at this point, we're looking at getting into the Fraxant business. Um, you know, the aggregate mine, just to give you quick, quick numbers, we were mining limestone in Florida. I think it was costing us, you know, a dollar twenty-five a ton to get it out of the ground. And I think we were selling it for a dollar fifty, and sales were, you know, marginal at best. Which is there just was no demand. So we're making a quarter a ton, and the mine was operating at probably thirty percent capacity. And at the time, we did a little bit of research on Fraxan, and Fraxan, you know, was at the time would cost. Uh, you know, upwards of twenty to thirty dollars a ton to get it out of the ground, and you know, wash it, screen it, and and dry it, and you could sell it for over a hundred dollars a ton. So the margins were staggering, and we saw an opportunity to just yes, kind of. Yes, sounds great. Let's go. What are we waiting for? Let's, let's sell this. And and that's that's how we got into oil and gas. We ended up uh, raising some capital. We bought that mine in Nebraska. And by the time we exited that mine, uh, the, sorry, the business in 2018, uh, we had um, five frac sand mines throughout North America. And we were in the process of opening three more in Basin. So one in West Texas, one in South Texas, and one in Oklahoma. Um, all three of those mines are open and operating today. We are no longer a part of that business. Um, but it was uh, a major, major operation. We started the company with, you know, 18 employees. And when we left, there was, you know, we're approaching, uh, you know, 600 employees and growing to 900 fairly quickly when those three, um, those three in-basin mines opened up, uh, which subsequently opened up after we left. Yeah. Um, so that yeah. was. Man, and so I bet you saw a ton of the landscape changed too. I mean, the, the margins, just thinking back to 2000, you said you bought the first mine in 2007? Yeah, the first first mine we bought uh, towards the end of 2007, and then we bought our second uh, in 2008. Yeah, and so you're looking at, yeah, $30 a ton up to over $100 a ton in 2007, and just a restriction on supply. And I mean, you guys weren't the only ones that see that opportunity. Lots of other mines opened up all over the place, but fascinating that you could operate a mine then in nebraska and i mean the primary consumers i assume were barnett so texas oklahoma and then bakken kind of in north dakota yeah it was a little bit of everything um yeah. but i would say the fayetteville was our biggest market initially and then eventually we grew we built some strong relationships with some of the major service companies who really helped us grow our business you know and that's kind of how how it all happened um but you're right i mean we 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 were i think our only our only saving grace is that we were one of the first entrees. You know, we were one of the first guys to jump in. So we had a, a two to three year head start. Um, but eventually, a hundred other guys basically did the same thing and uh, really, um, you know, commoditized the Fraxan market, um, yeah. which was, you know, naturally and going to occur. We knew yeah. that was was going to happen eventually. It wasn't, it wasn't if, it was when. But if the margin's there and you can act early and quickly, then yeah, realizing the opportunity, uh, so somebody is going to make the money. <laughs> that's right. You know, and, and we looked at might as well be you, right? That's right. You're 100 percent right about that. And we looked at it as, look, you know, right now it's it's supply and demand, right? There's, a, yeah. there's not enough supply, so let's capitalize on that, and then you know, use that capital to, to build and grow a sustainable business. And we knew the way to really grow the Fraxan business is to be, 
you know, you ha- it's all about volume. You know, he who has the capacity is king. So you become, if you have capacity, available capacity, that's at, at a, on a landed cost basis, you can deliver it competitively, then you will, you will always do well, even if your margins go down. Because so talk, talk to me about, yeah, sorry, I'll let you finish. Yeah, because, you know, even if the, if the product gets commoditized over time, your margins go down, but your volumes are up. So, yeah. You know, it, you could build a sustainable business. And then we wanted to take it a step further. And, you know, we're firm believers in order to really build a sustainable business, you, you have to diversify your product portfolio. You have to be able to, you know, solve problems for your customers. You can't just can't just offer them Fraxan. You can't just offer them a Me Too product. And so t- talk to me about. I mean, 2007 to 2018, that, that was a that was the shale revolution, right? I mean, it's still happening, but that was kind of the development of the whole play. Talk to me about how you guys handled the price shock, uh, or I'll call it the first price shock in kind of 2014, 15, 16. Um, you know, an oil drop from $100 a barrel to $25 a barrel or whatever. Um, was it just really having a sustainable business with volume or you know, improving service quality, ex- uh, existing relationships? What, what helped you guys through that period? I, I would say yes to all three of those that you mentioned i think well first first i'll back up a second we survived 2009 which was uh, yeah yeah pr- prior to you know i, I forget about that because i was yeah i was just getting to college so yeah yeah so so 2009 was tough i mean that was kind of like the root awakening for us yeah. and like wow this business could be hard yeah, <laughs> our margins right. are not really disappearing we are not selling any sand <laughs> that's that's right and i would say pricing recovered um after 2009 um and quickly recovered like in 2010, the market, you know, the roof blew off again, but it ne- the pricing for Fraxin never recovered to what it was before 2009. So that was kind of like, okay, you know, we, we, we kind of got our, the first taste of how, how, uh, how it works and how things work in oil and gas. And, and we were fine with that. You know, we, we just, we knew that we still had a strong business that we could, we could grow. And, you know, our thing was always, we just got to diversify. We, you know, the first chance we get to, to bring in more products or partner with, you know, third parties that can offer, you know, expand the offering, um, then we become more valuable. What, what helped us. So I think that helped us that experience in 2009 helped us. I think, um, to your point, we had, at that point, we'd built really strong relationships. I think the fact that we were able to stay in business in 2009 showed our customers that we have, um, you know, we have the stamina and the resilience and the, you know, the financial backing to be able to weather the storm. I think that was important. I think that helped us. Um, and I think that the other thing that helped us in 14, 15 is that we had, we had really strong supply agreements, really strong contracts with all our customers. Um, in most cases, a lot of our customers did, um, you know, gave us, um, they were, they were prepaid sand contracts. So they would, they would, they would write a check for, you know, several million dollars up front to secure the, the allocation. And then it would be like, um, you know, they'd get a credit toward every ton that would kind of, you know, um, burn away that prepay. So, so that gave us, um, we, we call it stickiness, right? You know, our customers are not just going to walk away from that cash. So before they go jump ship and go buy from somebody else, they're likely going to negotiate with us and, and, um, you know, we have a seat at the table. So in 14 and 15, as painful as it was, you know, we were able to keep every one of our customers and we just had to, you know, it was, we were horse trading. You know, our customers were like, look, pricing is too high. We, it's not sustainable. Um, you know, here's some other supplies that are coming online. 
And, you know, so fundamentally we saw the market changing aggressively and very quickly. Um, but we were determined to, you know, keep those relationships because we knew we wanted to grow the business and diversify. And those customers were really important to us. So we did everything we could. We dropped price. You know, we we had customers that were like, you know, we said, look, if you can buy some other grades, we'll we'll give you huge discounts. So we discounted price. And in exchange, we got extended term. In some cases, customers put up more cash. So it was a mixed bag of negotiations across every one of our sand contracts. But, you know, we still when we came out of it, we were still um, 80, 80, 85 percent of our capacity was uh, was spoken for. Nice. Now, were you guys involved with uh, ceramics at all or just uh, problem, just sand? Just, just sand. Yeah, we stayed away from ceramics. Um, we, we saw we saw that market um, getting getting hurt pretty, pretty aggressively. You know, d- demand was going down. A lot of guys that were pumping ceramics were switching to natural sand or resin coated sands. So we decided to get into the resin coated sand business instead. And that was in uh, 2012. I'm a firm believer that, you know, and everything in oil and gas, it's not one size fits all. You know, the ceramic guys for many years, um, you know, they relied heavily on, you know, they were the, the best at marketing their products better than anybody I ever saw. And, and you know, but their main marketing strategy was that ceramic is better than Fraxan. And I would tell you that they were right about that, but not in every reservoir, you know, yeah. and I think I think what the market realized was that you know, in most reservoirs, most unconventional reservoirs, you, you, ceramics is just overkill. And, you know, I think I think resin coated sand uh, played a big, you know, played a big part in, in, in taking some of that ceramic market share. And that would that look really um, attra- that was really attractive to us because a it was an opportunity to, to you know, sell more frac sand. Um, you know, albeit just coating it with, with, you know, some type of chemistry. And, and it also, you know, we wanted to diversify and get into some more specialty products. So it was, it was the perfect fit. You know, ceramics, if you, you're familiar with ceramics, you know, it's, it's another type of mine. It's another natural resource. It's very expensive. They're very expensive to manufacture. And, you know, we, we just thought that in resin coated, uh, resin coatings were were a perfect add-on as opposed to getting into a you know arguably a totally different business because mining fraxan and processing fraxan is very different than than uh, mining and processing bauxite. Makes sense. So kind of fast forwarding to your guys's exit, how how did you why did you guys exit that business? What what was it like uh, looking for an acquirer or uh, how how did that pro- how did that process go? Yeah, and it, that was a very painful process because if you can imagine, um, you know, Preferred Sands was our baby. You know, we started that company from scratch, um, but you know, we had to bring in private equity capital um, to grow. And in order to be, in order to build a sustainable business in Fraxan, you really had to be big. You know, you had to be just huge volumes. You know, and quite frankly, bigger than we were comfortable being. So I think. I think really what it came down to was um, philosophical differences between um, the management team and and the leadership and and ownership, which which I was a part of, and and our private equity partners. Um, 
you know, there's there's no hard feelings there because those guys were great. They were great to deal with along the way. Um, much to everyone's surprise, we actually had a great relationship with them. And um, it just, you know, there was a there was a fork in the road, and yeah. and we had to their decision had to be made, and we wanted to go left, and they wanted to stay right. So we we decided that, um, you know, when they said no about starting 10x, we neg- we quickly negotiated a deal. Um, and I say we, it's really our CEO, uh, Mike O'Neill. He's the one that's that's uh, deserves all the credit for this. But he he quickly negotiated a deal to allow uh, select few people in our organization to spend a small percentage of their time uh, starting 10x outside of Preferred Sands. And in hindsight, that was the the best decision you know we ever made and you know i'm thankful to him that you know he was um savvy enough to kind of see the writing on the wall on uh, as it relates to fraxan and you know his ability to see around the corner has always been um spot on i mean he's just very good at that and that's what makes him such a good entrepreneur um much better ability than i've ever had quite frankly i've been arguably riding his coattails since I started with him <laughs> at the age of 22. Ah, that's, that's always helpful. I tell people well, that all the time. If you want to be successful, you need a champion of your career, somebody that is going to uh, bring you along, you know, that, that you, you add to their skill set and you can execute on things that they cannot and that they're not good at, but that you can absolutely, um, y- you know, help them and create a partnership with them. So. You're, you're so right. You're so right about that, Mark, and that's probably the best advice that you can give some of these young professionals in energy that that you come across. Um, you know, I think in, in one of your questions that you sent me ahead of time um, was, you know, what advice you have, and that that that's one of them. There's a couple of things that I listed, but that's one of them. You know, is just find a mentor or a leader or somebody that you can work for that, um, you know, can kind of help help pave the way for you. Um, you know, and, the, and he's been, he's been, you know, not only a, a mentor and a, and a leader for me, um, but, you know, also a good friend. So I've been very fortunate in, in that sense to kind of hitch my wagon onto his vision and, and, um, you know, he hasn't steered me wrong to date. You know, we've, we've, we've won some, we, we lost some, right. You know, preferred sands, uh, not the, not the ultimate outcome we were hoping for, um, but we built a great business and, you know, a great portfolio of customers that we we were able to, you know, transition to to 10x and get into the chemical space, you know, virtually seamlessly and selling to the same, basically the same companies, maybe maybe not the same individuals within those companies and organizations. In some cases it was, but in most cases it wasn't. But generally speaking, it made the transition much easier. So and that was all a tribute to our experience at Preferred Sands. So pivoting to 10x, uh, t- talk to me. Well, actually, you, you mentioned that uh, you guys were able to form what sounds like a small business unit while you're still at Preferred Sands to work on 10x. Let's ch- chat a little bit more about that. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was like, actually, you guys like, yeah, yeah. formed a little internal team and said, hey, we're going to work on this kind of as a pet project. And then if it, if it has legs, then we'll spin it off or these guys will just kind of exit. But how did that work? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question. Um, uh, I wish we were able to have an internal team. We we really weren't. They literally they allowed like three people in the company to spend like less than ten percent of their time, and really the agreement was you can do it, but you got to go hire a management team that's outside of preferred, um, and it and it can't be um, 
can't be housed inside of preferred forever. So, so short term, we we were able to do, but it was you know everything had to be like a shared services agreement uh, between 10x and preferred, and you know there was always this kind of Chinese wall, and it became too complicated. So what we did was we quickly went out, hired a, a president of the organization. Uh, she's no longer with us. She came from uh, Dupont, really sharp girl. Uh, very talented and operationally, she did an incredible job of helping kind of get the business set up for success. Um, and, you know, and then we hired, you know, some, some other staff, back office staff, and then, and then we had to build a lab, you know, and so we had to go raise capital to do that. And, um, which we did several of us, um, you know, put up our own cash and then we had to go raise some capital to build a you know, state of the art lab which still exists today in Berwyn, Pennsylvania, which is where my office is today. And, um, and we had to just kind of go, we took a flyer, you know, hire a strong management team that we, that we trust and let them go do their thing, give them the, the tools to, to be successful. And that's what we did for the first, essentially from 2016 to the end of 2018, you know, 10X was really running, um, with a, um, its own management team and sales team outside of preferred sands. I was not allowed to spend any time on 10X while I was at preferred. And um, we had essentially a shared services agreement, which I think was smart. What we did was we had the preferred sand sales team selling 10X products as kind of like a contract sales type of agreement. And and that helped us, you know, because because preferred sands already had an established sales team that was selling frac sand and resin coated sands. So we just gave them, you know, an opportunity to go sell chemicals as well to the same customers. And that helped that helped kind of get the business off the ground and get our first trial wells. Um, you know, that was that was really that collaboration was really helpful. And, you know, our pri our private equity partners allowed us to do that, which was was great. You know, they could have said no. They could have just said you know, no, no cooperation at all. Go hire a management team and then, you know, they're on their own. Um, but that wasn't the case. So. I love it. We've tackled a lot of the business side, but let's, let's talk a little bit more about the technical side or what, what were some of the first products that they were working on? Um, and what was kind of the value proposition that you guys were chasing? Yeah. So, so the first, the flag, first flagship product, or I should say the first technology that we worked on, which ended up being our flagship is NanoClear. And NanoClear is just a, a, a true nanoparticle technology. And what I mean by that is um, not to be confused with a nanosurfactant. Um, it's just, it's a water-based chemistry that has nanoparticles, so true solids that are three to 10 nanometers in size and what that means is that the naked eye cannot see them. And those particles are actively charged. And they, those charges um, in the, that the particles have interact with the polarity of the, for, of the reservoir, of the formation, and um, inherently alter wettability, right? So, so it improves um, residual oil saturation, improves hydrocarbon mobility through the rock, um, those nanoparticles just really kind of condition the, the, the rock, the reservoir, um, and allow for enhanced recovery. You know, that's kind of the very basic explanation on how the, the, the technology works. The, the 
that phenomenon is called Brownian motion. You can Google it. It's not, you know, we didn't invent nanotechnology. We're just, we just figured out how to apply it, um, how to use it in an oil, oil, oil field application um, to drive value. And for, for those that might be unfamiliar, can you try and help define wettability? Sure. So, so there's different types of rock, right? There's rock that is oil wet or water wet. And, you know, what that means is some, some rock just retains more. Saturated with, right? Which, that's right. Which type that's of right. is uh, more sticking to the rock. Exactly. And, and what this, what these nanoparticles do is in rocks that are more oil wet, it helps them become more water wet. So it helps them release more hydrocarbon and retain more H2O. So typically what we see in, in our field trials, whether it's a restem or a new completion, is you see an increase in total fluids. But as a percentage of the total fluid recovered, you have a much higher percentage of, of hydrocarbon than water. So in a lot of these applications where water is an issue, water cuts really high, you know, this, this product can really drive value for our customers. Um, and, if, and if the water is not high, but you're still looking for a lift in production, you know, then this product also works really well in those applications. Interesting. Have you guys pumped a bunch of jobs or what, what's the adoption rate looking like? Yeah, so NanoClear is in now over 300 wells um, in U.S., Canada, South America, China, and then we just had our first shipment to the Middle East. We're shipping to Oman for a bunch of restem wells. So I would say that right now we're still, in some cases, we have customers that have fully adopted and we have customers that are still in the evaluation phase. We have a couple major operators in the U.S. that are on the one-yard line of going to full adoption. Uh, they've been doing trial wells for the last two years you know, and monitoring production and seeing how they, how the, you know, how the product is performed. We have one, one major operator uh, was, did a really thoughtful pilot study. They ran, they ran NanoClear with oil and water tracers and they did it every fourth stage. And then they introduced some competing products in the other stages. And then they also had a, a essentially a, a, a stage where they pumped no chemical. So if you can imagine a four stage sequence where, you know, they pumped surfactant A, surfactant B, nanoclear, and no chemical. And then they just kept repeating that four-stage sequence throughout the entire lateral um, and completion of the well. And they ran oil and water tracers, and then they, they recovered the data. And, and the nanoclear stages outperformed dramatically. Um, around 40 to 45% increase um, was, the, was the recovery factor compared to the next, um, the next best stage. Yeah. Wow. So that was that's a fantastic design of experiment, right? Pretty yeah. pretty intelligent to say, hey, you guys want to test a couple a couple of different products? Like we'll we'll go head to head with anyone else. Uh put putting them in the ground. <laughs> that's right. And we were we were really fortunate to 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 be able or be selected to participate in that study um because there's not many operators that have the budget to do that kind of of study. Um you know, given that oil and water tracers are really expensive and, you know, it's just a, it's an it's an expensive and time consuming and resource consuming experiment. Um, but the outcome was was great. And and it's given us a you know really good 
um, the data that we got back from the customer. Unfortunately, we're not allowed to share the data, so we haven't been able to publish a case study just yet. I'm, we're kind of waiting for them to go to full full adoption, and maybe maybe someday give us permission to publish it anonymously. But um, nonetheless, you know, we feel really good about the prospect of this operator, you know, using NanoClear in in their 100% of their program next year, which is a huge opportunity for us. And we have several others very similar, just like it. A um, couple operators in the Permian uh, that are, you know, very similar. They've done some wells over the last few years. They like the results and um, we're actually bidding on on their work for next year right now. So so we feel good. NanoClear's just been a, it's been a, a really, um, I mean, we, we launched the company in 2016. We had our first, with NanoClear, we had our first well in 2017. It took a year to get that trial. And uh, since then, it's just been a lot of evaluation and a lot of, uh, a lot of trial wells, and we're we're just now on the on the precipice of kind of going to the next, say the final phase of of commercialization, which is adoption. Um, we got two small operators in the Permian that are pumping NanoClear in all their wells. Um, they're they're tiny though, so they're not you know major operators, but you know great great customers for us because um, we're you know we're allowed to we can go out and, and promote that. Uh, to the to the market, um, but we've we've we're on the precipice of having some really big guys, um, you know, kind of adopt NanoClear as as part of their program, which we're really excited about. Love it. Do you have other products that you want to highlight? We do. Um, you know, Microhold obviously was our second launch, and you know that product we love. Uh, we love the fact that you don't need you know a two year evaluation process to to decide if the product's working for you or not. Um, you know, Microhold is a, it's a, it's a micropropent. Um, we don't like calling it a micropropent because, you know, it kind of micropropent, it, it implies that, you know, it's more of a long-term recovery product. And the reality is that, you know, no one, none of our customers are purchasing micro Microhold today um, as a micropropent or for long-term, you know, enhanced recovery. Um, the product is a really fine, uh, fine mesh, class quality silica. Uh, it's about a 625 mesh that we've been able to tailor uh, and suspend in in a fluid. And we use a shear thinning suspension agent. And you know what that means is it's just it's it allows us to the formula allows the micro the micro uh, particles to stay fully suspended in that formula for a long period of time and when i say long period i mean weeks and that gives us enough time to make the product and deliver it to the well site so that it can be applied before any settling takes place interesting so, so you that's sell it, kind it's of like it's in a chemical tote so correct so right. we'll sell it in totes or some of the bigger jobs will ship in isos um, the product is really easy to pump. You can pump it on the fly. It's water-based. Um, and, and, the, and what's, what's the benefit? So the benefits are, you know, twofold. I mentioned one of them already, which is long-term recovery, right? The idea is you're getting these, these micro particles, uh, can, can access these secondary arteries and micro fractures where Fraxan can't fit. Even your finest Fraxan, even your 200 mesh or 300 mesh cannot fit in these micro fractures. So the idea is if you pump our product in the pad, um, you can access these micro fractures and these secondary arteries. And even if you get 
conductivity out of these microfractures when they close, then you're going to see enhanced recovery. Um, so that's the first benefit, um, which was, you know, truth be told, the, the main, the original reason why we developed the product, um, the, what we thought were secondary benefits are now have now become the primary benefits, which is all these operational efficiencies. So the product works really good, you know, as a far field micro diverter um, uh, for pressure dependent leak off issues. Um, it improves uh, you're dealing with with tortuosity, tor- tortuosity issues uh, near wall bore uh, works as a great scouring agent. And, you know, in the, and, and it's helping our customers essentially um, get to rate quicker and and, and um, sustain rate, um, you know, and 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 getting getting in and getting out of these completions quicker. You know, I had an operator tell me once, Miguel, I don't I don't really care about the in- enhanced recovery or the improved production because you know I'm not going to see that at least for for the first six months. And even if we do see it six months later, I'm not going to get any credit for it. He's like, I just need you to help me get the rate quicker and get out because that's what's going to save me money. You know, our so pumping contract. True specialist engineer at a big company that's living in a silo. <laughs> like, that's it. Dude, I, I don't know how much oil we get out of the ground. I just know how much my costs are, and that's what my bonus is based on. <laughs> that's right. Could, couldn't agree with you more, but you know uh, that's that's, that's the challenge. dynamic that we deal with all too often. Left hand doesn't talk to the right, and nor do they care, right? <laughs> so they just they just care about you know help me get to rate quicker, save me money on my on my pumping contracts. Uh, this particular operator. Uh, was using a major service company and their contract was by the minute, literally. So um, we we were able to to generate you know significant savings for them in 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 pumping microhold, and um, you know same thing in in uh, in the in the DJ. You know we have a major operator that's pumping it in every one of their wells. They're playing around with different concentrations and trying to optimize right now, but they they like the product and it's basically helped them reduce their screenouts significantly, almost to to a, to a, a minimum. Yeah. That's awesome. Cool. Well, pivoting to kind of our scripted questions that we'd sent over to you. What's what's one thing about the energy industry that kind of kind of scares you? I mean, you were in real estate, but look into the future. Uh, any any big concerns? I know it's it's tough to think about concerns right now when uh, you know oil. I think I checked this morning; it's in the low 80s, and you know there's shortages all all over the world. We need lots of oil, but yeah. anything? Yep. Yeah. No. I I would tell you. Um, you know, oil, high oil prices scare me because I feel like, you know, <laughs> yeah, what, what goes up must come down eventually. The whipsaw. That's right. right. Um, if we could just stay in that like 60 to 70 range, I'd, I'd be ecstatic. But, um, you know, it's just not how the, how the world works, you know, and I know, and, I know a and, lot of executives that feel the same way and they, they, they want the flat volume model, just like the, the mines. Right? And say, that's right. Hey, we can make money at this, but you know, can we just can we just keep it at that? <laughs> yeah, if you can just get oil to trade in a really tight band and just keep it there, I think I think the world would be a better place. But you know, I think that's wishful thinking. So for now, you know, we just do the best we can and ride ride the wave, right? Try to get as is build our base and pick up as many customers as we can, you know, to prepare for you know to weather the next storm. Um, so, so yeah, the volatility always worries me, and and right now that's probably what worries me the most about the the oil oil prices. You know, is it's bittersweet. It's great, you know, because everybody's working and everybody's making money. Our customers are making money, and that you know that kind of trickles down to small guys in the service industry like us. Um, 
but ultimately there's there's risks there given the the you know imminent volatility that that we're going to see in the future so i would tell you that's that worries me the this administration worries me um you know i i think i think the 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 demonization of of one industry you know and blaming one industry to be the culprit in you know some of the some of the problems that either are real problems or perceived i'm not going to get into you know that with you because i don't think it's the right right format or place to oh, do it yeah. but you, you, you can we, we can talk about it over beers at length that's and, right uh, the, the qualm i have is people highlight problems without highlighting benefits frequently that's right they offer impractical solutions so uh, i'll say you know if, if people are real about climate change and ESG, then we'd be building nuclear plants and just be done. But you're you're 100% right about that. I'll take that a step further. We be, we should be building nuclear plants and and natural gas power power plants too. And you know, I see natural gas as the perfect bridge fuel to to clean energy. You know, and look, let's let's be honest. I think net less than two percent of the vehicles in the world are are uh, are electric. But you know, right now those in my opinion, in my humble opinion, climate activists might, you know, get mad at me. But those electric cars, for the most part, are are um, they have literally they're coal burning cars. I mean, that's that's what they are. They're 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 most of still we still have the majority of the electricity that come that that we get in the in the world comes from coal fired power plants. So switch those to natural gas. And you're really moving the needle in terms of, of of emissions, right? And switch them to nuclear, and and you're even moving the needle even even more. So, yeah. well, the needle's gone. You don't you don't need the needle anymore. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, you know, for for 10x, I think for us to really build a long-term sustainable business, we have to continuously innovate. You know, I I tell our team all the time that we have to be. Um, it may sound a little bit cliche, but we have to be like Apple. We have to launch, you know, the new iPhone every year. Um, and, and what I mean by that is we have to continue to launch, develop and launch new products, new technologies that bring value to our customers and in parallel make, uh, make our existing products better. Um, and I think to date we've done a really good job of that. You know, if you think about where the company started, and where we are today, you know, we started with one one product in 2016, and today we have four uh, technologies, two of which are are fully commercialized, and two are are kind of just getting started. So, um, I think you know that's uh, that keeps me up at night. You know, just knowing that we have to continuously um, develop new products and continue to innovate in order to be you know a true technology company. Um, and then, you know, finding talent, you know, we just, we're growing and we're going to need, you know, we need people, we need really talented people across the board in sales and supply chain and, and R and D. And, you know, I feel like finding really good talent is important. I think our company culture is really important to me and, you know, trying to preserve that and grow a business is, is challenging. Um, so so that's a, another thing that I worry about as it relates to 10X specifically. What advice do you have for uh, young professionals? You gave one tip, kind of find a mentor, hitch your wagon to somebody, but what what else? In oil and gas, I would say, I just, I think, I think we need 
more progressive thinking uh, from young professionals and engineers. And I mean that, you know, if, if you're if you're um, if you're an engineer or you're a CEO, we need more progressive thinking. We need we need more um, openness to trying new things and 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 taking risk. And I know that may sound a little bit self-serving, but I'm going to I'll revert back to my comment at the beginning of this conversation, Mark, which is you're still leaving 90% of the hydrocarbon behind, right? Yeah. So so we have to be able to do better than that. Um and I and I am convinced that we can, but in order to do that, we're gonna have to take risk and try new things and you know, and I think I think there's certainly an appetite for it. And I think I've certainly seen a change in the last 10 years in, in the industry to be more open to trying new things. In some cases, things that are just completely crazy and other other things that are uh, other um, areas where, you know, things are actually, you know, really well thought out, um, calculated risk type of type of uh, okay. risk taken. But generally speaking, I just think we need a lot more of that. I think we, we, I think the industry's come a long way. I think that we've seen a lot of the old, older regime kind of retiring, and some of the new, newer, younger uh, engineers uh, that are coming up. Uh, that's been really exciting and really fun, and I've gotten the opportunity to work with a lot of them, and uh, it's great. And and that's you know obviously we need that to be able to grow our business, but I think the industry needs it um, if it's going to con- continue to improve. Um, and build off of what you guys have accomplished to date, which is, you know, as I mentioned, you know, absolutely fascinating. Well, I tell people this all the time. Innovation comes from small changes to designs and lots of lots of tries. It's not a, a miraculous step change that someone pulls out of their basement, you know, after working on it for 30 years and then develops this incredible new technology. It's many changes and many changes over a long period of time and lots of lots of experiments. So I agree with you. And I think it's just finding the balance and finding the partners that are able to, yeah, like you say, have, have an adequate risk appetite to manage that adoption with, you know, perhaps a subset of their total investment. And yeah, it probably challenging, especially in, you know, a volatile environment, volatile commodity environment to get people to change and step out. But I totally agree with you. We got to keep trying new stuff. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, look, I've done a little bit of research on your career and, you know, you've, you've done really well and you've become very successful and well-respected in the industry. And I will tell you that that attitude, what you just described is a, is a direct reflection of the success you've had to date. You know, you, you keep that up and, you know, you'll, you'll do really well, um, in, in this industry and, you know, just in business in general. I appreciate that, Miguel. Just in in general, last piece of advice is is take risk now while you're young, uh, because I guarantee you, you know, you're if you don't, you'll look back and regret it. Even I look back and regret not taking more risk, and I've taken quite a bit of risk in the last <laughs> twenty years, you know. And I still feel like ah, oh, we so should have done this. Like, oh my God, I'm so happy that worked. <laughs> <laughs> I, absolutely. I, I look back often, of, you know, decisions that we made or 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 decisions that we, we we things that we decided not to do that, you know, in hindsight, had we done them, you know, would have worked out really well for us. But so I've certainly um, taken plenty of risk, um, you know, in, in, in my career. And and for me to look back and still regret 
not taking more, I think speaks volumes. So for, for all the young professionals in energy and anyone else listening to this podcast, take, take risk, uh, because, you know, you, you learn so much from it and, you know, there's one thing that you certainly can afford to do, um, when you're, you're starting a career and even in, in the first 10 years, 10 to 15 years, especially, um, is you can certainly afford to take risks. So take as much of it as you can, because you'll be, you'll be much better off later on down the road, uh, no matter what happens, you know, whether you, know, you succeed I, or fail. I've, I've been thinking about this a lot and I think a different way to frame it for folks is, you know, if you, if you remain in the same job or with your same set of responsibilities, even in, in whatever job you're in and, and, you know, you don't want to rock the boat or you don't want to take a chance on a new company or you don't want to start a company and have an entrepreneur mindset that in and of itself is inherently risky because, you know, you, you stand a chance of becoming obsolete and you stand a chance at missing out on a ton of the upside. And it's, it's thinking about opportunity cost, right? If you invest in yourself, expand your responsibilities, add more leverage and risk to your uh, career early on, then you, you have a chance to, to build more skills. You have a chance to make more money. And if you don't do those things, then later on, it, you know, it's not like you're going to magically know everything later in your career. It's, you're going to miss out on the chances that you could have took before that'll make you ultimately more successful later. So that's right. That's right. You articulated that perfectly. And you think about, you know, those chances that you, you didn't take at, look at a minimum, at a minimum, what you, what you gain out of it is, is a personal growth and, and B you'll be respected by your peers and by your subordinates and your superiors later on in life more than you will ever know. And, you know, look at the end of the day, it's not all about money, right? We all get out of bed every day to make to make money, but you know, you also want to feel fulfilled and you want to feel like, you know, you've, you've made a difference and you know, you're doing something that, you know, not only that you love and you enjoy, but that's actually creating or perpetu perpetuating change in a, in a positive direction. And, you know, to me, that's really important to me, you know, and I, if I could do that and make money at the same time, then that's like, that's the Holy grail. It's, it's win-win. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And I've, I've done that many times and lost a lot of money too, but that's okay. You know, you, I've, in every one of those, those instances where I failed or I, I lost money or I took a risk and it didn't work out. Um, you know, I, I learned a lot. So it's always a win, no matter what the glass is always half full. Well, where do you see the energy industry going, Miguel? Uh, you know what, if we all had a crystal ball, I think we wouldn't, you and I wouldn't be sitting here. That's for sure. <laughs> on a podcast, you know, pontificate. That's pretty fun. I like talking to people. So I might. <laughs> I think the energy industry is going to remain strong. I think we're going to continue to see, um, you know, the volatility just because of all the macro and microeconomic factors and global economic factors that impact the commodity price. But I think the industry needs to stay disciplined. We'll see what happens, you know, in, 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 in four years. But, you know, I think, you know, the administration, we need more support from that. And I, but my hope is that, that, that happens. We, we, things, things change and we get a little bit more support from, from the administration. You know, I personally believe in the energy transition, but 
my my belief in the energy transition transition or how we get there, how we get from point A to point B, um, is is likely you know a little bit different than most people. I think I think oil and gas, not only does it must it be, I think it will be a a, a part of the equation, a, a large part of the equation, and. You know, I don't think I don't think we ever get away from fossil fuels. I think we get away from perhaps. Um, I, I, I think we we lower. Uh, I think I think we get away from burning as much as many fossil fuels as we do today. But I don't think we get away from uh, the, the need and the demand for fossil fuels in some way, shape, or form. And I I think the prospect of that is, is tells me that. We're going to have a, a, a sustainable industry long term, whether that's going to happen in the next 30, 40, 50 years or won't happen in our lifetime. Time will tell. But I know what role I'd like to play in that energy transition with 10x for the remaining years that I have in my career. Awesome. Thank you all. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us. 